I recently came across a, a little bit of a humorous account of why it's important to tell the whole story when you're talking to somebody. One day an old man was casually walking along a country lane with his dog and his mule. Suddenly a speeding pickup truck careened around the corner, knocking the man, his mule, and his dog into the ditch. Later on, after the old man recovered from his broken arm and leg, he decided to sue the driver of the truck to recoup his medical cost. While the old man was on the stand, the counsel for the defense cross-examined him. They said, now I want you to answer yes or no to the following question. Did you or did you not say at the time of the accident to the driver of the vehicle that you were perfectly fine? The old man responded, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road, and the attorney interrupted him. Sir, I ask you to tell me, yes or no, did you say to the driver that you were perfectly fine at the time of the accident? Well, me and my dog and my mule were walking, and the attorney appealed to the judge. Your Honor, he said, this man is refusing to answer the question. Would you please insist that he only answer the specific question at hand? Well, the judge said, well, he obviously wants to tell us something, so let him speak. The old man said, well, me and my dog and mule were walking along the road, and this truck came around the corner far too fast, knocked us into the ditch, and broke my arm and my leg. The driver stopped, got out of his truck, saw my dog was badly injured, went back to his truck, got his rifle, and shot it. Then he saw that my mule had broken his leg, so he shot it. And then he said to me, how are you? And I said, I am perfectly fine. <laughs> Good answer. There are times in our life when you will go through hardship. You will experience suffering in your life. And people may ask you, how are you doing? To which most of the time we respond with, I'm great, thank you, <laughs> right? I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. They may ask you to give an answer for how you're doing. And when they do, I think what's important is that when the time and place is appropriate, we don't always respond with a very shallow, I'm fine. That may sound good. It may sound spiritual. But I think God wants us to tell more of our story. Because oftentimes our hardships and our suffering in life, God wants to use to demonstrate his power to those who are watching, right? He wants to demonstrate his goodness to people that may see us enduring suffering or even tragedies in life. God wants his name to be exalted in our life. He wants others to know of the hope that we have in the midst of our suffering and hardships. But listen this morning, Christian, we have to be willing to share the whole story. We have to be willing and, listen, courageous enough to share the rest of the story. When you read the account, accounts of the lives of, of the apostles, like Paul, like Peter, you get the whole story, don't you? 
Don't you get the highs and the lows, not just the highlights, not just uh, the ministry highlights? You get all of what happened. You hear Peter talk about how he failed Jesus, right? You get to hear how he imploded and just kind of ruined an opportunity. You hear how Paul, he writes how he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, right? He endured suffering. He almost died for the Lord and for the gospel ministry that God called him to, but he shared the whole story with you. And I I really believe that it's in the sharing of Peter and Paul's story, their whole story about the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God through all of those good times and bad that Jesus is then high and lifted up and he draws all people to himself. I think that's how it works. This morning, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 continues to share with us how we are to live our lives on earth as Christians, as aliens, Peter calls us, in this foreign world. This is not our home. We are ambassadors here. We're heading to another destination. Amen? This is temporary. But he says, here's how you live out your temporary time as, as aliens on this planet. And so he's continuing that theme in 1 Peter 3, and he's trying to encourage these, uh, these Christians who were suffering, who were feeling opposition to their faith. Life wasn't so great for them at this particular time in their life. But he's encouraging them to, hey, uh, as you go through this experience, it's an opportunity. You can speak up and you can share with the world who's asking you about the hope that's in you about your God, about how you're enduring and how you're making it through and how you're coming out on the other end because of your faithful God. And the first thing he says that is the way that you can do that is to, is to do good. Look at, at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Peter says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks who ask you to give an account for the hope that's in you, but with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Verse 17, for it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I think Peter is kind of laying out... uh, um, general principles for life as as a believer. Uh, Most people don't get harmed or persecuted for doing good. You notice he says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Look, that's that's a truth. Most people don't harm people that are doing good. Does it happen? Of course. It does. But it is rare. There are times and, and places when some try to harm people doing good to others, but the principle is Most don't. 
So Christians, what are we waiting for? What are, what's holding us back from doing good? Is it fear? That's what he said that these believers, uh, what might hinder them from doing good is that they're fearful that someone may harm them if they do good. Maybe they have seen that happen in their lives, and so they're fearful that if I go out and I do good, there's a chance, for Jesus' sake, maybe there's a chance that I'll be persecuted. But Peter's saying, who's going to harm you for doing good? I mean, really. We have no excuse for not doing good. We have no excuse for not being eager to do good. Maybe that was the issue. Maybe they weren't zealous for good. Maybe they thought, yeah, I should probably be doing good. But, you know, it's not the most uh, friendly environment for Christians in this world that, that I'm living in, that they find themselves living in in the first century, right? And so maybe they weren't zealous then for good works. It hindered them from doing good. And Peter's saying, who's going to harm you if you are eager or zealous for good? There is no reason to fear, Peter says, because even if someone were to harm you, you are blessed. If you're out doing good for the Lord because God's directing you to do something good, however he may be directing you to do that, and you suffer harm or ridicule or slander or pff, look at that, or they judge your motives... Who's going to harm you? Because Peter says, God's going to bless you. God loves to bless that. Blessed is the same word. He says, you are blessed. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the blessed are? Uh, blessed are you, the Beatitudes? It's the same word. Blessed are those of you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Do you remember when Jesus said that? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think what God's telling us here through Peter is that he's called all of us to be zealous for doing good, for doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do. And if in the process of following God's command on your life to do good works and glorify our Father in heaven, we encounter harassment or opposition or suffering or whatever hindrance as a result, don't consider that as anything other than the blessing of God. That's a little upside down, isn't it? Usually when we do good and we suffer for it, we say, well, that was not worth it. Guess I won't do that again. Not so in God's kingdom. And, you know, Peter's speaking from experience. He and the other apostles in the book of Acts, they were traveling around. If you recall, at the beginning of the church, they're traveling around and they're sharing the good news concerning Jesus, but they're also healing people. They had signs and wonders. They were healing people, right? Restoring sight to people. Lame people were walking. Miraculous stuff. Preaching the good news, good news of the kingdom. It's all good stuff, right? 
Well, apparently not. Everyone thought so. In fact, they kept getting arrested for doing good. And they, they kept getting threatened to stop doing what they were doing. But you see, they realized they had a, a commission from a higher authority. They were imprisoned. They, they busted out of, of jail one time because the Holy Spirit busted them out. That was pretty cool. So what do they do? Do they go back and hide? They're out preaching again. They go right back at it. And then they're arrested again. And then they were beaten, flogged. I mean, this is a serious beating that they took. They were threatened again. Don't ever speak in the name of Jesus again. And then they released them. But what these believers understood is what we all need to understand this morning as children of God, as recipients of God's grace, as ambassadors of heaven, is that they have a calling from God to preach the good news of the gospel. As we do. God left us on the planet with a commission to make disciples. And His authority is higher than man's authority. And so when the time came in their life when God's marching orders suddenly were in opposition to what the local governing authority was telling them to do, what, what do they do? Well, I guess we, can't, guess we can't preach here anymore. Local government told us to stop it. <laughs> Acts 5.29, Peter, 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Amen? Isn't that cool? God's our authority. They didn't fear the men. They didn't fear their threats. They were already beaten and, and imprisoned on more than one occasion, and they still said, sorry, we have orders from God. Acts 5.41 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That's cool. That's the perspective. That's the life of faith. That's Peter. That's what he's talking about. You are blessed if you get persecuted for doing the work of the Lord. So here's the question I think every Christian needs to ask themselves. As a believer, as one who has been called of God to be an ambassador of heaven, am I zealous for the good works which God prepared beforehand for me to walk in, according to Ephesians 2? Am I eager to do good, the good that God has called me to do? To be zealous for something means that you are committed to something and therefore zealous. Someone who is enthusiastic about what they are doing. Does that describe the way that you serve God in the good works that you find yourself doing in your Christian life? Are you enthusiastic about it? Are you excited about it? Because God's prepared this for you. Are you deeply committed to the good works? Or are you tempted to withdraw to your isolated world and hide 
from the good works God has planned for us to do. Well, if you're anything like me, uh, I imagine that the temptation is constant some days to retreat. Uh, as much as I love people, as much as I love church ministry, gospel ministry, spiritual ministry, as much as I love all of those things, you know what I really love? I love being at home in my castle, lying next to my wife, watching Netflix or Discovery Plus or whatever channel we're watching. Uh, hear me out on this for just, just a second. Uh, the temptation is for me to say, I can't wait to get home, to get comfortable, to turn on the, on the tube and do nothing. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? Here's the temptation. When that becomes my happy place, I've completely misunderstood what Jesus said when he said, happy are you when you do this. Blessed are you. Do you understand the, the difference? Jesus, happy and blessed are the same word. You could read the blessed are um, when Jesus spoke those uh, on, the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Happy are you. The temptation is for me to think that that's my blessed place. That's my happy place. When I'm happier, when I'm zealous for leisure. When I'm excited and happier about getting away and vacationing and spending time alone or enjoying my hobbies than I am serving God with the good works that he's called me to serve him with. Are you following me on that? Because that stuff's fun. I, I do enjoy doing nothing from time to time. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with retreating. We all need, God, God has created us with this need for rest and this need for relaxation and, and joy and entertainment. And that's all well and good, and I do enjoy that. But when I look at life as if that's the happy place, and I'm enthusiastic and excited and can't wait to get there instead of doing what God has called me to do as one of his children. I kind of rewrote the Beatitude uh, one of them, of uh, this one, just thinking of what would a selfish beatitude sound like? Happy are those who avoid persecution for the sake of isolation, for theirs is the kingdom of self. Happy are you when people do not insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because they don't know that you know me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is replaced with your comfort and ease on earth. Can you imagine the impact that this church could have if every one of us took to heart this calling of God on our life to be zealous for the good works that He prepared for us to do long before the world was ever formed? Could you imagine the impact 
that we could have if we all personally took that to heart. We have a wonderful opportunity. One commentator said Christians have an incredible contribution to make to the society in which they live by breaking the cycle of people returning evil for evil. As we begin to do good, most people will return that good by doing good. They will pay it forward, as you may have heard it said. What a marvelous ministry with very immediate and measurable results. Just as people tend to return evil for evil, they usually return good for good. Indeed, when you do good, blessing comes to everyone involved. That's a good perspective. Change the narrative. There's a lot of negativity going on today, right? A lot of evil being returned for evil. That's the temptation. That's the flesh to say, I was hurt. Let me hurt someone back. Rarely do you see, oh, I've been hurt. I've been maligned. I've been falsely accused. Let me bless somebody then as a result. But that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Just do it. What's keeping you back from doing that? The good works. Is it fear? Why do we keep isolating ourselves? Why do, why do we withdraw instead of move forward? Uh, I think it was fear for a lot of them, and I think there's uh, maybe a fear to it as well for a lot of believers, at least in my experience, there was a fear as a young 20-something-year-old man, there was a fear to living for, for God in my life. The fear was FOMO. <laughs> my fear was fear of missing out. I believed that as a young 20-something, and I was a believer, if I were to surrender my life to Jesus and really do the good works and really live the life that I knew God called me to live, well, then I needed to check fun at the door. I would miss out on all of these fun things that, that the world has to offer me, right? And then I'm going to get stuck going to church, studying the Bible, you know. How boring can you get, right? So I had this unwarranted, this lie really that I was being fed by Satan that if you do what God has prepared for you to do, to live the life that God has prepared for you, well, you're going to miss out. It's boring. And it wasn't until I suffered and I was faced with hardship that I had to stop and just think about my life and what God had planned versus what I had planned. And you know what I came away with the conclusion? God, you have got a way more exciting and interesting plan for my life than me. My plan got me, you know, got me in trouble. It got me into heartache. It got me incarcerated. It got me strung out. It got me broke, you know. It got me miserable. And finally, God broke through. I think as Christians, as Burleson Bible, if, if we ever want to be zealous for good works, eager to do what God has planned for our life, then we have to have this next point in place, and that is we've got to be prepared. 
Look at verses 15 and 16. Peter goes on to say, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, but with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, some translations say. Always be prepared to give an answer. That's the good works, I think, folks. Those are the good works that we are to engage in, as Peter tells us to. He's already mentioned some of the good works. If you recall from our previous study, if you just look back in, in chapter 3, you'll see it. There are, there are good things that we should be doing. There is a good way that we ought to be living. It's not just doing good deeds in our home, in the church, in the community, and, and, but, you know, and we should do those things around the world. That's a major part of God's plan to reach the world is as we're out ministering, doing good to people, He's going to use that. But doing good can just mean living right, living righteously, living good. Like loving people, just being honest in your dealings with people, being compassionate with people, being understanding, being humble. He calls us to all of that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Controlling your tongue is a way to live good. Controlling your keyboard. Being, being a peacemaker in life and not an agitator is a way to be good. But being zealous for good really starts with being zealous for Jesus. If you, if, if you remove Jesus from this uh, equation, well, then you just have religion. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good things apart from the, the empowering strength of Jesus Christ. It has to flow from an a eagerness to follow Jesus. To be deeply as the definition says, to be deeply committed to the person of Jesus Christ and enthusiastic about what He has for us to do. You don't dread it. You don't shy away from what Jesus wants you to do because you want to embrace it. You're excited about it. You can't wait for what God has planned for you. But to do that, Peter says you've got to revere or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. To sanctify, you probably know this, means to set something apart. Set Christ apart in your heart as Lord and Master. That means His will, His desires for me, for my life, is my top priority. From the time that I wake up out of bed, my mind, my heart, my life bows the knee to Jesus. Lord Jesus, good morning. I am here and I'm ready for your marching orders today. What do you have for me? And when we are sanctifying Jesus as Lord and Master of our life, each day we will live out our Christian life here on earth in a way that prepares us for when the storms of life hit. That's the preparation, folks. 
It's our close intimacy with and trust in Jesus Christ day to day in our hearts that serve as our apologetic, if you will, to everyone who asks us for the hope that's in us. You ever have somebody observe you in a time of crisis? I am thankful that a lot of you haven't seen a lot of me in some of my times of crises. <laughs> you don't want everyone to see everything, right? Because like, there are many times when hardships hit, crisis hit, even the trivialest things. Is that a word? Trivially, trivialist? Even the most trivial issues that pop up in my life, sometimes I don't handle well. But then there are times when I think, I know that others are watching, they're observing my life. I want them to see Christ in me. But I have to sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart every day to be prepared for that. I can't, I can't just bebop about my Christian life, going about my will, doing my fun things, enjoying life, and just never really considering Jesus as the Lord and Master of my heart every single day. And then something happens in life, a tragedy hits, a hardship comes, and then all of a sudden I'm just going to start singing the praises of God. If I do that, that's called a hypocrite. That's called somebody that's not being honest. But if I am sanctifying Christ as Lord, if I am on, a, on the daily coming before God and saying, God, I need you today. I need your perspective today. I need to trust you today and your, and your plan for my life. I want to walk in the good works that you prepared for me, Lord. And I do that consistently and I'm walking my faith and I'm growing in my faith. God, I believe, will use our hardships and our sufferings to show other people that He can be trusted, that He can help you weather the storms. But I think it's our, our life that's going to be the answer. I think that's what is in view here. Uh, our English word apology comes from that Greek word translated here, answer. Right? Uh, everyone who asks you to give an account or an answer it's from that word apology, from where we get our word apologetic, right? And I think what Peter's saying is your life's going to be the answer. I think our life has to be the answer first before our words. Would you agree? Because if the life doesn't match up with what we're saying, well, then I don't know that that's much of a defense for any hope that we have. And I think we've gotten it wrong for many years, at least in my limited understanding, because you know, I see these apologetics ministries and a lot of, to do, with, and people love apologetics, and I think we've gotten it wrong because I think we've thought for many years that apologetics means that I study, 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 study theology, and I know the Bible so well that whenever someone asks me uh, to give an answer for the doctrine that I believe, well, then I'll have an answer. But I don't think that's correct at all. It's not about having the answers to the questions of the Bible. It's not about being able to respond to questions of doctrine or theology. How many people over the years, honestly, think about this, how many people in your experience as a Christian, whether you know them or not, have come up to you and said, hey, can you tell me about your faith? 
you know, what is this about this Christian life? That's never happened to me. Okay. One time I took one of those testaments. Just kidding. And someone smelt my breath and they said, your breath smells fantastic. Tell me about Jesus. Now that's a, no one has ever out of the blue asked me, hey, man, you're a Christian. Tell me more. The only time that people have ever asked me about my faith or what I believed, it's usually another Christian that wants to debate me on a point of doctrine, right? That's the time we get those questions. Or maybe somebody will ask me obscure, obscure questions, right? You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Who are the Nephilim? I don't know. Who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? That's what the world wants to know, is who are these sons of God? I mean, that's going to transform the planet if they know that answer. Here's what I say to all that. Ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm not trying to say that there isn't a room for apologetics uh, or study and understand. We need to know what we know about God but it's for our personal transformation. It's for us to, to carry out the Great Commission. It's for, it's for us to, to be more like Jesus, to give an answer to the hope that's in us, right? About our future, about our joy. How, how do you go through what you're going through and still ha haven't lost it? How do you have this peace about you? How do you still have joy when I see all this happening in your life? That's when we turn to them and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's because I have a faithful God who empowers me, who gives me joy. He is my, my source of strength. Amen? It's not my circumstances. When, when Peter's writing to these Christians, and, you know, he's writing to people that are suffering real life stuff. They've lost everything. And Peter wasn't saying, hey, be ready to give an answer for anyone that asks you to explain the five points of Calvinism, you know, that's not what he had in view. Because they were living with daily threats of persecution, of imprisonment, or even death. No one was thinking about systematic theology in the first century, at least not these Christians. People needed hope. And I think Peter is saying that when a believer surrenders to the majesty and the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, in their heart of hearts, the place where no one else knows exactly what's important to us but God, in that place that God only sees and, and sees how we prioritize things in life, in our hearts when we sanctify Jesus as Lord and Master... And we surrender to His plan and His will and His purpose for our life. What flows from us and from our life is joy. It's a peace that passes understanding. It baffles the world. But that's the point. That, that's how it's supposed to work. We, when we're surrendering ourselves to the Lord daily, when we're sanctifying Christ, what flows is not anger... It's not bitterness, it's not hatred, it's not evil speech, it's not even fear, but it's peace, it's joy, it's joy inexpressible, Peter says. 
It's hope like the world doesn't have. They just don't have this kind of hope. But we do. And God says, I want to take what I'm allowing you to go through so that you can demonstrate to all who ask, why do you have hope? Because I serve a sovereign God who has all things under his control, including my life. That takes faith, doesn't it? That takes real deep faith. That takes trust. That takes an intimacy and a personal walk with Jesus for it to be true. And he says that you've got to do it with a clear conscience, right? That means me and the Lord know that I'm genuinely trying to serve God with my life. I'm truly trying to live honestly before the Lord. Very imperfectly, I do mess up. I sin. I struggle. There's a lot of days I want to I wanna do over. <laughs> but I'm thankful for the grace of God in my life. And I think when the accusations come, if slandering comes to you because of your faith, if people mock you, that's what was my fear for years. If my buddies thought that I have started going to church, well, then I knew that I would be this Jesus freak, this Bible thumper. You know, I would be ostracized. I would lose. I thought I'm going to lose safety. I'm going to lose friendships. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose a lifestyle that I find enjoyable and pleasurable and I think's fun. And so when you make that decision to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and you're striving to live for Jesus, slandering may come, mocking may come. It, it happened in Peter's day. We believe that Jesus is going to return at any time. Guess what? Most of the world doesn't and they will mock you because you believe it. They will mock you because you believe this book called the Bible. They will ridicule you if you say that I believe in creation, a literal creation account. Guess what? You will be a laughing stock. Why? They just say that's not scientific, right? There's a lot of ways that we can be slandered by an unbelieving world. But the point is, folks, that when, if and when that happens, because Peter says, if you suffer harm, which doesn't happen often, honestly, but if it does, you'll know that you're walking in integrity, right? You're not perfect, but you're real, and I think that's what the world is looking for. People take notice. They start asking you for the reason, that, for the hope that's in you. It can happen. Warren Wiersbe says, a crisis creates the opportunity for witness when a believer behaves with faith and hope because the unbelievers will then sit up, take notice. I, I've noticed that quite a bit in the last, uh, you know, six to eight months of my life with my wife and I, that people, when you uh, go through a crisis, they seem to be a little more attentive. You ever notice that? When you're suffering, when you're going through a hard time? You know, uh, this weekend I was invited by Cody Hughes. If you remember, Cody was here uh, just a few weeks ago, the young man and his wife who are um, directing this gap year program out near Houston, Texas. It's called 3D Training Center. There's about a dozen students enrolled in this program right now. 
They've graduated high school, but maybe they just haven't decided what they want to do with their life or what God has for them. So they're taking a year to go study the Bible. Isn't that a great idea? They're, they're learning the Bible. Like most, almost every book of the Bible, they're learning Greek. They're learning uh, life skills. And they're living uh, on campus here at this little gap year program that just started last year. This is the second year. Cody invited me to come and to teach. And when I came, uh, when I went there last Friday, you know, I showed up Friday and I, and I spoke in their chapel and I taught uh, a couple classes on that Friday. I taught the Bible. They gave me a section, two different sections in Colossians, and I taught it. I taught the Bible. I taught theology, even a little systematic theology. But do you know where the real lessons came during my time Friday? When I started talking about the, the work that God's doing in my life through this suffering that my wife and I are enduring. That's when they stood up and listened. Uh, because I was able to share the reason for the hope that's in me and that's in my wife. For those that don't know, my wife is uh, battling cancer. We actually go this Wednesday for our scans to find out if all of your prayers have been working. <laughs> so... It says the prayers of righteous people avails much. We'll find out. No, I'm kidding. So for, for us, you know, uh, th and these students have been praying for us, by the way. They were aware. They've been aware of our situation, of this crisis called cancer that we've been going through. They've been praying for us in their gap year program every day. They're very familiar. I know some of the students personally. They don't no, a couple of them know Shayla, but they don't know us. But when you show up and you say, here's a person that's going through this crisis, and you speak of God's faithfulness, and you speak of God's goodness, and you talk about the hope that you have, people tend to listen. And that's the final point this morning. It's, it's all for God's glory. Peter ends this section with saying, for it's better if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil kind of goes without saying, but the bottom line is, guys, life is full of suffering. You're going to suffer. You will encounter various trials in life. It's not if, it's when, James says. We're all going to suffer. And Peter's just saying, hey, it's better if, if, if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than evil. If you suffer because you're doing wrong, well, I mean... <laughs> You made the bed, you got to lie in it. Sometimes we just suffer because we're boneheads. We make bad decisions. It's not God making us suffer necessarily. Sometimes we, God allows us to suffer because we make wrong decisions, right? Guilty of that, uh, that's where we learn a lot. But he says, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good, it's better. It's better than suffering for any other reason. And when he says, it's, if it's God's will to suffer for doing good, then, then what's evil, that verse is stated in the optative mood. And it means that suffering for doing good is not God's usual, but rather His unusual will for them. Does that make sense? It's written in a way that says that it's not usual to suffer for doing good. God's will isn't that you would go out and live for Him and do good, and He's going to just keep making you suffer for it, you know? 
He's just going to, you know, make you suffer because you're out living for him. That's not how God is. God isn't that kind of God. He's a good God. He's a loving father, isn't he? Do we think God wants us to suffer because we're out serving him? That's a wrong perspective. But that's the temptation sometimes to think, where is God? He's abandoned me. Why is he letting me suffer? Many of the Old Testament authors especially ask that very question. Anytime we suffer for trying to do good and, and follow what we believe is God's will for our life is unusual. God is a good father. His desire is to love us, is to uh, have a relationship with us, to grow us, to shape us, to become like Jesus, to carry out his purpose for our life and to live out the good work so that he can reach the world for us. That's God's purpose. Matthew 7, Jesus spoke of this. He says, Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? We have to remember that God is a good God all the time. Everything that he has planned for our life is for our good and for His glory. We need to walk in that truth. We need to remember that. That's what our life is about. And if we're living to, to know God's will for my life, that's a question that I hear a lot. What is God's will? What does He want me to do? Usually there's something that we're, we're, we're wanting to know. What decision should I make here? What is God's will? What would He will me to do? And we get into this, this situation where we're competing. I know what I would like to do, but then what does God want me to do, and is that the same thing? And if we're living to know what God's will is for our lives, here's the key. We have to die to ourselves every day. We have to surrender our will and our desire and what we think that we want to do and we need to align ourselves, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to us as Jesus said. And if we encounter suffering along the way, you better believe that God has a way of making it worth it. It's never for no reason. It's God working out his will in your life. Have you found that to be true in your life? Have you found that to be true? Uh, here's a challenge I think I'd just like to share with you all this morning. If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time now, for, for years, you know Jesus He's the Lord of your life. You're living to please Him, but you've also encountered some struggles. You guys have been through some stuff, right? Am I right? If I, as I look out here, I know some of your situations. Uh, some of you shared some personal struggles and things that you've been through in the past. Some of you are going through stuff right now. Can I, can I challenge you to think about this? Maybe the good works that God has prepared for you is to take that suffering or that situation that you have gone through or you are going through and share 
the hope that's in you with someone else. I think we underestimate the power of a testimony for the goodness of God in our suffering. So I want to I challenge every one of you to do that, honestly. Maybe you struggle to find out what are the good works. What's God want me to do? I don't know. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't know where to get plugged in. What if we just said, you know what, I'm going to pray about this, and I'm going to pray that God brings someone into my life, or I'm going to seek someone out, that I can come alongside and just encourage them with what God has done in my life. How he saw me through this particularly troublesome time of my life or this issue or this crisis that I've been through. A lot of you have been through stuff and sometimes we just hide it. We don't want anyone to know. Why? Why, why do you not share how God has rescued you from hardship in life. Why? Usually, fear. We're afraid people are going to judge us. I don't want somebody to think less of me if I tell them that I struggle with something. Right? That's fear, folks. That's pride. You know, uh, this weekend when I was there... Um, I noticed that there was a lot of discouraged people. I didn't know what I was getting into when I went. I was just showing up, and I had a great time. It was wonderful, but I found myself talking with um, some people that, are, that have been struggling. Like real stuff, like, like, man, I don't know that I want to keep doing this anymore kind of stuff, right? Questioning God's plan, questioning God's will. Here are people doing good stuff. These, these are leaders in this in this ministry, these are pastors and Bible teachers who are saying, I don't know if I should continue to do this anymore. That's when you hear someone that's been in the ministry for many years and faithful to the Lord, that's a good indicator that there is some real spiritual opposition going on in this ministry. And what I found myself doing was being an encourager. And I shared the reason for the hope that's in me. And as they look at, at me and they know my situation and our circumstances, my wife and I and what we're going through, I can share with them, hey, God is good. You are doing good works. God is using you. God is blessing you. And though your circumstances may say otherwise, maybe you don't feel, maybe they, there were people being opposed in this ministry, there's people that have been abandoned in this ministry, and there's a lot at stake. We are in a very uh, unprecedented time of bad news, folks, right? Discouragement is running amok through our country. Turn on any so social media outlet, mainstream media news, just talking to people. A lot of negativity, right? A lot of bad news, a lot of bad things. That, that's what makes the headlines. Our world needs a word of encouragement, and it's going to come from you. Who else is going to be out there exalting Jesus and talking about the goodness of God when their life's falling apart, when the, when the economy is what it is, right? When people are suffering, who's going to stand up and say, yeah, but God is good, and my hope is not in 
my situation. My hope is not in my health. My hope is not in my job or my finances or anything else in this world. My hope is in a person and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? My hope's in Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what I think Peter says that we need to be prepared for. Are you preparing so that you can give an answer for the hope that's in you? You don't have to wait for someone to ask. Peter says that people may ask you, and they may, but are you prepared? Maybe people aren't asking because we're not prepared. But are we prepared to give an answer? Uh, are we sanctifying Christ as Lord? Is He number one? Is what He desires and He wills number one in our heart and life? Are we surrendering to His authority over us as Lord and Master of our life? Are we sanctifying Him? If we are, I think we'll be prepared. God will give us the words. He will give us the answers. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning and this time to just uh, travel through this passage as Peter tries to encourage a group of believers that were suffering because of their faith. They experienced hardship and trouble like most of us probably will never experience. But we can still take the lesson to heart is that you have a purpose for us, Lord. And it's not about us. It's not to build our kingdom. It's not to live a, an easy life. It's not to pursue the American dream. It's to sanctify Jesus as Lord in our hearts and be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us with gentleness. We need you, Lord. Help us to know our need for you. Help us to spend time with you, to draw close, to be intimate, that you may search our hearts and know us. We can depend on you and be provided everything we need for life and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.